The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. This is extremely provocative to say such a thing, but we get cases now of women calling us. We've been involved in the Harvey Weinstein stuff. We're really fighting these yeah. issues. And I would say most powerful women, it's very, very rare when she hasn't been sexually trespassed against in this culture, in the States, or hasn't been raped. It's a, such a common phenomenon. It's an mm-hmm. epidemic. I'm Kevin Poulter, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Oliverius of McAllister Oliverius. Regular listeners will remember Anne from the podcast with Catherine Mayer, and she's back again because she's got so much to talk about. So we cover off her career, starting out in Yale, right the way through to the present day and those Weinstein allegations. Join us as Anne shares her experiences of Yale in the 1960s, of the sexual liberation movement, but also the steps she took to challenge the patriarchy. Anne's one of those lawyers who wants to change the world and is changing the world, and she's stepping up for the people who otherwise wouldn't have the voice to do so for themselves. And for listeners of a nervous disposition, do beware there's some swearing in this episode. The Hearing. Anne, welcome back. Uh, and that's the first time I've said that because you're the first returning guest. Uh, we didn't get enough of you the first time round. And of course, you were here with Catherine Mayer, uh, founder of the Women's Equality Party. And we talked very much at the time around her case and yes. your assistance and your work in that. But we thought there was more to give. And there is, I'm sure. So we're going to talk to you about your life and about your career. So... Um, ego can be put to one side uh, it's, this is your, your chance for self-promotion and there's a lot to talk about and I think perhaps the first place will be to start with your early career and, and formative years um, why did you go into the law? Thank you Kevin for having me back oh, it's, it's a really good to be here it was really quite um, lovely and fun to do the interview with Catherine Mayer, but she's a really tough act to follow. <laughs> I'll do my best to provide some entertainment. I've got no doubt. What she, I remember what she did say, say to me was that you're the scary one. Oh. Um, and it didn't prove true then, so I hope it doesn't prove true now. Well, either. today I'll try very hard to show you that scary side. <laughs> um, my own background actually is a little bit scary in some ways. Um, I grew up in the States, as my accent might indicate, um, into a family. I'm one of five sisters. Um, There's five of us, five girls. And so for my parents, um, in a way, the only game in town was the feminist game, because (laughs) if you didn't bet on your girls, you had nothing, you know. How did dad cope with that? Um, Well, he was um, pretty directed. He was really focused on us being successful. But um, when I grew up in the States, there was a group of singers called the Andrew Sisters, Mm. and they would sing. And my father, I think, had it in his head that uh, his girls could do that. Because he didn't really have a sense that we could become professionals or anything, or doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. But we should sing. Um, The fact that none of us could hold a tune, of course, uh, didn't affect him much. He was insistent that we do that. Then, of course, we'd get married, have a bunch of kids, be good Catholic girls. And well, I mean, that was the script. But for some of us, all of us, that script didn't really work out. Mm. And um, I think the house itself, my father had um, violence in him. And certainly um, that was expressed in the family structure. There was a lot of drinking uh, in my, you know, amongst my parents and, um, and some sadness with regards to that. And I think my mother, who had real talent, never was able to develop that talent, mm. not just because of my father, but because of that world she was born into of staying at home, being a housewife, mm. and then becoming um, 
being a, a narcissist in a way that became more expressed after Betty Friedan and the women's movement started in the States. And I think she wondered, why am I having all these children? She had 13 pregnancies to have the five. Gosh. Why am I staying at home? And she was, I think, bored out of her mind doing that. And she saw men ruling the world, and there was a piece of her that wanted that. Mm. And she never had a chance at that. And so that bitterness expressed itself in lots of ways, I think ultimately through the liquor bottle. Um, and certainly my father mm. uh, had been very violent towards her a couple of times, at least that I remember, and probably a lot more that I never saw. Mm. Uh, but it was a hard home in many ways to grow up in. But of course, it's the only home. And you you love your family, mm. and that's what you think is the norm. And so I thought everybody drank heavily. And you know, my life, I thought, was what everybody's life was until I got to Yale. And well, then I experienced great wealth from my roommates and people around me, and that was a whole different side of life. And uh, where, where did you fall in the five sisters? Were you around the middle? Were you the oldest, the youngest? Being no surprise, I was the oldest. Well, I, I, I was... Because <laughs> yeah. did you feel that responsibility to look after people as well and to, to sort of take on some of their battles? Because that certainly comes out later in your career. Yes, I mean, it's, it's so interesting you should say this. My greatest friend from high school wrote me last night, and she said, you know, I remember going to your house and you were always taking care of this, you know, your sisters, you're always making the dinner, shopping, cleaning the house. And I think that was how Catholic girls grew up in that period when you had, we were very lower middle class and, you know, you just did that stuff and that was considered what you should do. So I'm really good at those household skills. Um, you know, I don't do a lot of them now because life has changed. But certainly I have a lot of respect for that side of life and that's what I was tutored in. So how do you go from, whereabouts were you uh, in America growing up? So we were just outside of New York City in okay. New Jersey and um, in a community that Richard Nixon ultimately went to, Park Ridge, New Jersey, but essentially an all-white community, mm. um, pretty um, lowbrow intellectually. I think there wasn't a lot of culture um, or intellectual uh, respect in a sense for you know reaching out. And when I applied to go to Yale, I remember in my guidance department at school, the place that would support you in those applications, mm -hmm. they just laughed and thought this was ridiculous that a girl and that I should aspire to go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton. And they gave me no help with those really? applications. That was that world. Yeah. And so, so what motivated you at that time mm. to, to, to be that person that was, gonna, mm. I, despite what you're being told and, and uh, the guidance you're receiving, I'm going to do this regardless? Yeah. Well, because that's the question we all ask when we become parents, because we want to know what do we do for our own children mm. to make them want to do really well and to, be, to enable them to do really well? And how come some kids who grow up with a lot of opportunity and money sit back and enjoy their trust funds and others really go out to change the world? Mm. That's an age-old question. My case having come really from so little, there's a lot of love, but so little material things. Mm. And um, I was able to win a scholarship to go to Peru, an AFS, an American Foreign Exchange Scholarship, in 1972. I spent a summer there. My father would not pay a dime towards sending me. Mm. And so the community decided to pay for it and send me. And that I must say I'm immensely grateful for because it completely changed my life. I saw poverty, real poverty, mm. in a way I'd never seen before. And then I saw the contrast of wealth, as I had never seen before. I saw Catholic um, intransigence in their worldviews of being Catholics and so against abortion and against all sorts of social uh, ideas that uh, I grew up around, but not in a way that I saw it in Peru, where it was deep and entrenched and that was it. Mm. You know, um, so that changed my worldview when I came back and I decided I had to say thank you, thank you for even the little bit that I'd had in my life. I felt 
hugely grateful for and that I had to pay it forward. The women's mm. movement had come, so I felt here I have a chance to apply to the great institutions like mm. Yale and Harvard that had never happened before. Ultimately, I got a Rhodes Scholarship that had always been denied yeah. to women. So as I won these things, um, I really became deeply infused with the view that I had to pay it back and I had to give opportunities to others and I had to be thankful. Uh, what do you think it was that attracted Yale to you, um, to the scholarship? What was it that you had at the time that uh, exhibited itself that made them think that you're the one? Yeah. You know, when I went to Princeton to interview, it was a November day. This The snow was coming down on this most magnificent campus. It was like a big Cosby movie. It was perfection. And then there was an a cappella singing group singing outside. And I walked around thinking, this must be heaven. You know, and but then I went to Yale and I felt the power of intellectual energy of people out there, social activism. It was all over the campus. And that's where I decided to go instead of Princeton, although I you know, how beautiful Princeton was. Mm. But I really felt I needed to do whatever I could possibly do with whatever small gifts I had to try and empower others to help change the world for to make it a better place than what I had lived. Mm. I thought Yale would give me the best equipment to do that and put me in a community of people who were maybe similarly minded. Mm. And, and why law? Was that the obvious well, choice? Well, it was, it was going to be law and medicine. and um, so Just the small topics. Well, no, it was going to be law and medicine. And in medicine, I thought I'd have to be an obstetrician, gynecologist, or neurosurgeon because women were so utterly not in those professions. <laughs> and in obstetrics, of course, I thought that's a women's profession. So it would be hard to become a doctor and not do that to populate it for women. Um, but I thought actually to be an obstetrician... Um, wouldn't let my fight come out. And although I could do really well potentially for woman by woman and families in that way, that I could really make a difference by fighting the good fight by becoming a lawyer. That seemed better for my skill set. And mm. um, so if you go to Yale, and you're not just a, a socializing student, you're not down at the bar every night, you, you're immediately active. Um, I was going to say socially active, but um, social justice uh, active. And uh, how, I, what, what motivated, because you were in court at age 22, I think. Well, earlier, yes. Earlier than that. Yes, wow. indeed. Well, because if we're going to use the legal system to change the world, and you've got to get in and learn how to use the legal system. I became really uh, a believer that we had law and systems, and if we were going to use those systems, then that's how to change the world, and the rule of law was important. Mm. Um, so I took a lot of courses at the law school at Yale, even though I was an undergraduate. I took far beyond what I had to take to graduate, so I, instead of taking four or five courses every term, I would take seven or eight and I just loved every minute of being at Yale. And I became an activist um, on women's issues because Yale had just taken women. Mm. And so there are very, very few women on the campus and you really did feel like you were a minority. And Yale did this thing, there were 12 residential colleges. So instead of saying, we're taking this small group of women and we're gonna put them maybe in one college so they feel some camaraderie, they divided us by 12 so the men could all have equal access to the women. And of course, the social world then was really different. So, you know, the men all of a sudden, if they had to go to Smith College, an all-girls college, to have a sexual relationship, then they were considered, well, those weren't maybe the most attractive men, you know, mm. to have to go. Those poor chaps had to go to still to <laughs> Smith because there were just so few women. So the women on campus, you know, we had lots of attention and we were there, you know, obviously to provide a certain level of, um, you know, attraction and involvement for the men. 
Um, and of course, those are very free thinking days. There were no AIDS. Mm. You know, there was legalized abortion. There was birth control. There was a free thinking environment um, and a sense that just after the hippie movement that women could have lots of sexual partners. And certainly at Yale in my time, that was the how it went. And, mm. um, and that was a very supportive environment for that. But it wasn't just the students that were engaging in the sexual activities. And that was something you were particularly <laughs> concerned about. Yes. So um, I was asked by the Yale Corporation, the governing body of Yale, to do a report on the status of women at the institution. And was this whilst you were an undergraduate? I was an undergraduate. I was in my senior year, and I was running the Yale Undergraduate Women's Caucus, the women's activist group. And so I went around with a questionnaire and asked about all sorts of stuff and got a lot of anecdotes because I've always thought that social change and law sometimes happens best by using humor. If you can make people laugh and see things that way, and not make them so defensive that maybe you can actually do social change. Mm. So I went around with lots of great stories about male-female things. You know, this was really before gay rights, too, so that wasn't part of the dialogue. Mm. And it became really clear fast that very, very, very many of the women were having sexual relationships with male professors. Mm. And also that there were some gay men who were forced to have sexual relationships with professors. And so this theme kept getting built, and I would get these questionnaire back, and as I got the questionnaires, I'd think, what's happening here? This is something that is a problem that hadn't been named before. And so we developed the term sexual harassment. And we went to Yale and delivered this report. And they were incredulous. Um, they got very ugly about it. Mm. And they said it didn't exist. But we had all these women claiming rape and sexual harassment and then men. And so when Yale decided to do nothing, then we felt to do something, we had to file suit. So um, I was instrumental in developing and filing a suit that was called Alexander versus Yale. Mm. And in that suit, we defined sexual harassment. We said it was illegal as a matter of law in the United States. It was the first suit that argued this. And um, we actually won in terms of that legal theory in the Connecticut courts. Now, we were all kicked out because Yale didn't let the case go forward. They did all sorts of delaying techniques. So everybody had graduated by the time the case went forward. So the judge said, technically, since I had graduated and everybody else had graduated, there was no standing anymore. There was no one who was experiencing this problem who was at Yale. So we were mooted out. But what the judge said was, this is a problem. It exists, and it's against the law. So case after case after us was brought, and they prevailed. Mm. And so we were able to establish sexual harassment law throughout the United States and England and the yeah. world, and yeah. we're still involved with that now. We named a problem that had existed, and we defined it. So that was important. And that then progressed, because then there, during this time, um, there was a date rape, which I, I coined that term, date rape, with Susan Faludi um, heard me say I gave a series of public lectures at Yale on on this using the term date rape because there was a woman at Yale who had been approached when she was a fresh woman, um, a, no, a sophomore actually, by a man um, who's now um, very uh, impressive, important doctor uh, mm. in California and uh, approached this woman on a Friday night and said, can we go to the movies and have dinner? And the movies were like you paid a pound, you'd go to the movie, you'd yeah. see whatever something that already had played at the theaters, but you had no money to go to the theaters. So you went to <laughs> Yale and you sat in a classroom and watched the movies. So they did that. And then afterwards, he said, can I walk you back to your room? And then they got to the room and he said, I've had terrible, terrible news. My father and mother, they're elderly. I'm so upset. And could I just stay with you and just to lay next to you tonight? Because I'm just feeling so alone. 
and she trying to be not unkind and asking the question to herself, well, you know, why I don't want to be cruel, you know, why not, as opposed to why should I? And so she said he could stay. She went to bed with lots of clothes on, um, trousers, lots of mm. double underpants, I think, and all sorts of clothes. And then at four in the morning, he was on top of her, strangling her, pulling off her clothes, and then penetrating her. And uh, to her, screaming, don't, don't, please don't, and crying, but he had no interest in that. She called the Yale police the morning, right after this happened, and they said, that's not a rape. She let him stay, so she asked for it. She must have wanted it. They did nothing. She went to her master and dean of the college, talked to a couple of other people. They did nothing. And so um, I went around and gave these talks on what I coined date rape. Mm. And the response to that was deep and affirmative because many, many women came forward and said, mm. well, wait a minute. If that's what you're calling it, it happened to me too. Mm. And that then became in the common usage. And I think now, even in my practice, um, you know, this is extremely provocative to say such a thing, but I'm 64. We get cases now of women calling us. We've been involved in the Harvey Weinstein stuff. We're really fighting these yeah. issues. And, you know, I would say most powerful women, it's very, very rare when she hasn't been sexually trespassed against in this culture in the States or hasn't been raped. It's a, such a common phenomenon. It's mm. an epidemic. The younger generation tells me this all the time. And does that surprise you? We're going back to the 70s and this was outlawed. It was in the public eye. It was it was suddenly being addressed or in the awareness of academic institutions and, and society generally. Why is it still happening now? Gender violence. Why does gender violence happen? I think because essentially men get brought up in a culture where it's okay. Women are taught early on to dress in a hyper-sexualized fashion. I mean, interestingly, at Yale, when I was an undergraduate, we may have had an awful lot of sex and sexual partners, mm. but I don't remember the girls ever not dressing in dungarees. We didn't wear high heels or what they call fuck me shoes. You know, we weren't wearing makeup. We were dressed like the men were dressed. We went mm. to school. We got out of bed. Nobody paid attention to that stuff. And we fe felt really, really that we were sensual and we were alive. And, you mm. know, the studies these days tell us that we had a lot more sex back then than the young people at Cambridge and Oxford are having now. But I think the culture has become very hypersexualized. Clothing the girls are taught to wear. They only feel sexual if they're wearing, you know, clothes that emphasize their sexuality. The drinking was excessive at Yale. We learned to have cocktails and learned how to drink. There was very little binge drinking when I was there that I ever mm, saw. Mm. Now it's pretty commonplace. And then there's pornography now. And, you know, at Yale, pornography was considered day class A. Who, who would want to do that? And now people get sex educated by watching porn. And eight-year-old yeah. boys are watching yeah. pornography. And pornography, I've never seen, advances interests of women. It certainly doesn't teach men how to give women sexual pleasure. And it doesn't mm. teach the women that. And I think it actually shuts them up about sexual pleasure and tells them to just go along. And Does, does it surprise you that so little has changed? Well, I think a lot has changed, but for the worse. Really? And I think people are now... Um, not educated even about female sexuality to the degree where we're at Yale. I, I just have a law firm full with young, fabulous people, and I've got a lot of young kids, and I go to Yale and speak in other places. I think, you know, female ejaculation, for instance, that was a discussion at Yale when I was there. Now most women tell me what when they're really mm. honest that they don't experience it. Mm. Still have a lot of young women saying female orgasm. Um, I don't think I've experienced that. 
if they say that they haven't experienced it, I think female sex education is at her all-time low, mm. and I'm I'm really discouraged about it. And I don't think that women are standing up and, you know, insisting that it's otherwise. Mm. Um, I want to take us back a little bit to uh, to you back at Yale. But what happened after that? You've 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 already forged this incredible career. By the time you even graduate, uh, where did you go from there? So, were, you, were you hot property or were you a little oh, bit of a dangerous I, uh, hot potato? I never looked at it that way. I always thought you had to, you know, do the right thing at the right time. So I wasn't um, hesitant to stand up and be counted. There was certainly um, a certain level of abuse. I mean, Yale particularly, uh, when I applied for a Rhodes and a Marshall scholarship, which I won, and to go to Harvard and Yale Law School, which I got into, um, they said, you know, with the Alexander V. Yale lawsuit that I was a lesbian. That's interesting. I'm mm. all for lesbianism, but I was living with the man who is my husband now. <laughs> um, I have not slept with a woman. I think it's great. If I were younger, I probably would have embraced that <laughs> lifestyle, but that hasn't happened uh, for me, which is probably a sad commentary. And um, they said that I was failing out of Yale, and I probably was at the top of the class. You know, I won the Marshall and Rhodes. I, yeah. I think it was unprecedented that a woman ever had won those two scholarships at Yale. Mm. I got into Harvard and Yale Law School. Most people thought that was a pretty good accomplishment. I think so. Um, so that Yale would lie about these things as a public institution was, to me, quite devastating because mm. I believed in Yale. I believed in institutions, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale. They'd only do the right thing. Mm. And how could they lie? And why would they uh, Did they just make a mistake? And then to realize, no, it wasn't a mistake, but it was a deliberate PR move. Mm. Well, it grew me up and you know gave me more determination to go out and fight the good fight mm. uh, in the bigger world. So I then won the Rhodes Scholarship and came to Oxford. I did a DPhil in economics, won a prize for that at Oxford. Uh, and then I went on and uh, went back to Yale and got a master's in business administration and went to the law school, then worked, went to work in mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs, mergers um, Morgan Stanley, and became a lawyer at Sherman and Sterling and Pro Systems. See, this is where I get confused. You've got this huge uh, sort of social change movement. Uh, you've experienced this. You've made you've made a difference already, and then you go into the corporate world. Hmm. What was the yeah. re what was the thinking it, behind that at the time? Um, I felt deeply, and I think I still feel that um, I wanted to make sure that I could not be fairly criticized, and that if I was going to have opinions, I best make sure they were anchored in fact, and that I w was as credentialed as I could be, because that's the best protection. And so I figured that um, if I'm going to fight the good fight, I'm going to get beaten up. And at least I didn't want anybody to ever be able to say, honestly, that I was stupid or lazy or that I hadn't accomplished anything. I felt I had to be as best qualified as the best of men. And since I couldn't go to Eton and I didn't have that kind of wealth behind me, then I better get the best education I could get. And I'm guessing that back then, mergers and acquisitions was probably more male-dominated than it even is now. Uh, how was your yes. experience stepping into that world, yeah. away from academia, into the professional world, surrounded by suits? Yeah. Well, that was um, a world I thought I would love. I thought I was naturally um, bent for when I applied to do mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs. They took me. I was the only mother professional that they took. And then when I went to work, I remember the first day um, I was there and you know, there were these men who had just started, and they'd all come straight from the Marine Corps or mm. Harvard Business School. I had come from a clerkship, and um, I was hot in August in New York City. We sat in this room, and I was introduced as the mother who had just arrived. 
And I thought, wow, nobody had ever introduced the father who just arrived or something, <laughs> and that would be incredulous to them. Yeah. Then I did the training course, came up out at the top of the 450 people who were doing the training course, because I knew in finance, which wasn't the area I was best in, that I better show that I was best with this group. So I stayed, I did the course, I stayed late every night, did the course, although I had an infant. Um, but the world there was different. The people in Goldman Sachs with me, the men would go off in the lunch times and on their expense accounts, they'd pick up secretaries, other people, they'd go to hotels, they'd put that right on the expense account. Mm. That was the kind of world Goldman Sachs was. Um, and I lasted, did the training program, and then came back and I was fired. And I was fired for cause. And I sat in a room and I said to them, fired for cause. I'd gone to Yale Law School, so I had a wonderful intellectual training, but I knew nothing about black letter law, about actually how do you draft a contract, things like that, because mm. we weren't trained in that. We were trained to you know, write constitutional law, become Supreme yeah. Court justices, not to actually help somebody with a contract. And they said that um, I was fired for cause because I had submitted an expense account that um, had a couple of thousand dollars in it that was too much, that was wrong. And I remember looking at him and saying, the head guy, but hold on a second. I've never submitted an expense account. Mm -hmm. So how could I be fired for expense account fraud? And he looked at me and stared, and I said to him, this makes no sense. This is just not possible. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't interested, I realized, in the truth of that. This was what they call a stitch-up. But I still, at that time, having come from Yale, I believed now in corporate institutions. I believed what Goldman Sachs said, that it was the best and brightest out there, that they were honorable. Mm. Of course they were. I thought, this is just a mistake. They're confused. But they came to this view because they realized that I didn't fit in. There had been a session in this finance course where I was asked point blank that if under a subpoena that Rudy Giuliani, who was the attorney then, um, running New York, had sent across to Goldman Sachs if I would go through documents and remove documents that fell under the subpoena. And I said, no, I couldn't do that because that would be obstruction of justice, potentially, that you have to box yeah. those yeah. documents up and send them over to the U.S. Attorney's oh. Office. And I couldn't go through those and remove oh. things. They joked, oh, we'd, we'd want you to remove, you know, mistresses' letters and things. And this was really very funny. I said, um, you know, this is something anyway the legal department should do. I'm in the mergers and acquisitions mm. finance section, not my job. Uh, I said, and, I, and they said, but would you do it? And I said, no. So the day I was fired for cause for this alleged expense account mm. that I never submitted, it was clear that, and you might be the brightest person on the floor, uh, but you're not one of us. Mm. And in retrospect, going back to, of course, that time, yeah, 1986, um, there's the thing called gender inequality. There are no other women, you know, at mm. my level in the department who are parents. Um, I'm sure I was an anomaly. And they didn't know how to integrate me and couldn't see that um, maybe I wasn't not one of them or I was one of them in the best tradition. I wasn't going to be part of the worst tradition. Yeah. I also realized that I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office and told them and reported this. And they did an investigation. There were lots of things that fell out that partners at Goldman Sachs are actually arrested on the trading floor, as you may recall. Mm. It's 1986, 87, a long time ago. But I also learned that uh, if I had done that, and um, it had come out at any time, that I would have been the person who would take in the rap. It, yeah, I couldn't say, her. well, I was told by a partner to do this, you know, and I was just doing what I was instructed, that in fact, at a place like Goldman Sachs, none of the partners would ever be responsible. Hmm. It was going to be me who'd be doing time hmm. <laughs> at some prison, you know, and nobody hmm. would have sympathy. And I'd say that that was a really formative experience and taught me 
that um, that was my perfect record that was suddenly destroyed by this termination for cause. I realized that every major law firm, any of them I could have had a job in, you know, 10 minutes before this happened. Now that this happened, I also, because I was wired this way, was honest about it and told people about it. So I didn't use any of the techniques of saying it didn't work out. It just wasn't a comfortable <laughs> feeling. I didn't go and try to work out a package with them. They gave me some money when I left, but I um, didn't even think to say, oh, well, could we just say, it? you know, um, you know, good luck and it didn't work out like the men do all the time and I didn't even know to do that Mm. and didn't want to do that and so I went and told of course you know at all the other great law firms and places I would then go back and say would you want me I told them the story Mm. Um, and I went to um, I heard that uh, the the, at the Supreme Court of the United States Justice Brennan was looking for a law clerk and so I called him up, and he took my call because there were others there who knew me, and I explained what had happened. And he was the only one that said, I believe you entirely. <laughs> he said, um, and um, let's talk. And he offered me a Supreme Court clerkship, which for a variety wow. of reasons I didn't take. But um, it was interesting. Um, I realized then that those who sometimes are very powerful understand how the world works. I was just learning how it worked. And do you think that early experience then has gone on to inform the rest of your career. Absolutely. Because now I take on the great and the good all the time. I assume that all these great institutions want to do well, but they also want to make a lot of money. And I try to bring cases to make sure that they do it legally, that they don't take advantage of people, and they try and make a lot of money, but that they do right by people, they don't break the law. Mm. Well, let's bring it slightly more up to date. You came to the UK. I did. Uh, How did that happen? My uh, husband um, got a job to be the head of Time Magazine, Bureau Chief, London Bureau Chief of Time. And so under something of a protest, I didn't particularly want to come, but um, he indicated he would not come if I didn't join him. And so I felt that was my best thing. I had to join him and be supportive. So I came with our three children and opened up shop here in 1999. Uh, And that was uh, on your own? On my own, And yes. doing what sort of work? We did. I um, I was in London just a few days and had a call by an American um, who had heard that I was in town and he was buying the Savoy Theatre and asked for help. Denton's was involved with the case and we took the Americans and represented their interest and so um, I was up and running within minutes of having arrived. We did a lot of commercial litigation and then increasingly we do um, sex discrimination, employment discrimination. We've got probably the highest awards, some of the highest awards on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, We're both British solicitors and American lawyers. Mm. And uh, and, and that's uh, Macaster Olivarius, Macaster being your husband's name. Yes. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about the politics of working with your husband, uh, but I'm going to skip over that because there's a lot of other things to it's talk about. It's always better to leave those things alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not going to go into uh, into any sort of marriage therapy here. But um, the work that you're known for perhaps most now is the work that you were most known for back at the start, back at Yale, uh, working particularly with women on issues relating to discrimination, harassment, victimization, uh, and more recently, revenge porn. And yes. again, you've we, we've ticked off the names that you've, the, the words that your phrases that you've created um, uh, and used sexual harassment, date rape, revenge porn, I think is one of yours as well. Well, I did not create the term Revenge porn, that has been, certainly was around when we got into that business. It was just becoming known. We certainly publicized it, but I didn't coin that phrase as I did date rape. 
Um, but Revenge Pornography, we brought the first case here in Britain. We won a lot of money for a woman who was filmed being raped by her partner at the time. Mm. Or she just broken up with him, so the last night of their being together. And then he put it on the internet to shame her. And that um, got me involved in trying to bring litigation to bear here in the UK on revenge pornography. And I think it's fair to say that uh, we have been deeply involved in getting that litigation passed. And now we do a lot of work in that area. We're just about to launch a website business in that area in the UK. So it gives it, um, with the purpose being that a lot of poor people call us, mm. men and women who have been revenge porned. A lot of women do this to men also. It's not mm. just one-sided. And so um, for a very small amount of money, we'll have them come online. We'll give them the tools they can use to get the material taken down to do what they can to fight it. Mm. So we're trying to provide a new kind of legal services that actually reaches out to the dispossessed, the poorer people, the young who don't have any resources yeah. to solve it, this problem. And I guess it is particularly the young who are more affected by this. Is that is that your experience? Well, it has been certainly a lot of young people because it's a way of courting now to send naked pictures and very young kids are doing it. But certainly um, I know a lot of people my age, as I said, I'm 64, mm. when they're looking at second, third, fifth you know, marriages, yeah. they're sending pictures across also. Um, they may not be their pictures, actually, <laughs> but they're sending pictures well, across. There's, there's another cause of action. Yes, um, indeed. Uh, and, uh, but this development of new areas of law, you talked about having some involvement in, in having the law established. And I, I know that you would, for example, host dinner parties for MPs to try and lobby them around this. Has your position now being very different to what it was back in Yale as being perhaps the uh, uh, the unheard individual, you've now got a lot of influence around yes. these things. How, how has that helped you or do you still fight as the underdog? Far enough. We, we fight as underdogs, but now I have a grand house and we have salons and dinner parties. And, you know, we're not just doing revenge pornography. We're probably some of the lead agitators with Google, Facebook, yeah. um, social media, Twitter on um, not just revenge pornography, but cyberbullying. Mm. And we're trying to bring laws around and we're working directly with those institutions, people who run those institutions to protect people. Because now cyber rape is a huge, mm. huge issue. Mm. And regulating the internet is a massive problem. And we're not to that place of doing it and we're trying to organize people to do that. You know, in the United States years ago, the FBI came around um, and got involved in um, trying to actually uh, solved the problem when there were telephones and transport. So cars came about, telephones, and people would travel interstate now. And so crime was happening, and the states couldn't figure out how to solve the crime. So they created the Federal Bureau of Investigation mm -hmm. to get involved. Well, now we have, of course, cross-border crimes that are yeah. international. We need a cyber network that is going to actually police people. And we're becoming a police state in so many ways, as we know our Alexa and Siri are listening mm -hmm. to everything. Mm -hmm. Apple and Google hear our conversations. We're being monitored all the time. So I'm not Margaret Atwood, but I really think that it's time <laughs> that we litigated and agitated and made. We have to regulate this environment, and we're certainly leading the pack on those issues. So I think it's fair to say you like a challenge. And I think this is, do you think this has been the biggest challenge yet? Uh, this is the most important one to our democracy. You know, we've lost an election in the United States because of interference by the Russians. We know mm. that in Britain, it's the same. Brexit probably never would have passed mm. um, if it wasn't for electoral interference by, again, the Russians and others. Um, we have a huge problem, and if we don't take back our democracy, we're not going to have it. And do you think there is 
potential for change. There can be more than potential. It has to happen. It's an it's a necessity. We're facing a dreadful world if we don't get on top of this. And mm. for some of us, I'm sure you too. You know, we want to make the world a better place. Yeah, and and uh, you, well, you've you've segued straight into uh, as we're getting close to wrapping up, and there's so much more to talk about. Um, but uh, the two things really I want to to bring up are your work around social justice. Um, You've mentioned about the website uh, about revenge porn. This takes a lot of money to set up, and you've already mentioned that the people don't have a lot of money to pay for it. How is that? How is that working for you? Uh, you're yeah. a business at the end of the day, and you've got people to look after as employees. Uh, how do you manage those two responsibilities? Well, all right. Our business model is to make money while doing good. The um, revenge porn website is our gift in a way to the online community, to people who have been abused, to try to empower them with tools to solve their problem, as I've said. Mm. We'll see how successful we are in a few weeks when we launch this. Depending on how it goes, we'll do a similar thing in the States so that people can fight back and have the tools. Because you just can't hire a law firm. It's hugely expensive to take down uh, yeah. you know, notices, to send cease and desist letters, to do what you have to do to get these images taken down because they spread like wildfire mm. across the internet. You've got your images and... 60 different websites you've yeah. got to write each one you've got to agitate with each one so that's really hard so we're going to see what we can do here but generally with philanthropy we believe we really have to give back so we spend a lot of time on pro bono work philanthropy um, I think certainly since I've been in the UK um, you know I've probably been responsible for creating over 80,000 jobs okay. and our aim is to continue to wow. try and do that because the people have good jobs, they have good work, yeah. they feel good about themselves, they can go out there and live a good life, they can love, be happy, and they can do positive things themselves. And we're trying to you know, make sure that we can give our best to efforts to promote these good things in the UK. It's really important to us to be excellent citizens. Mm. Well, uh, finally, I'd be very interested in your take. Uh, or two takes really on the State of the Union. Um, uh, looking across the pond to America, back to America for you, um, and in the UK, where do you think we are and where do you think we're going in respect of your work, um, the work that you've done, the work that you're doing now, um, the way that women are treated? Uh, is there some hope for men at the end of all of this, mm. uh, whether that's as champions of change, uh, uh, sort of allies uh, as feminists? Are you more positive than you've been before, or are we still looking down the barrel of a gun? Mm. I, I've always thought that feminism um, is something that works for men as well as for women. I don't understand how uh, people don't want to call themselves avowedly feminist because they're people who advance human rights and men should believe in that and it advantages men to believe in feminism as it does women. It's saying I believe in the value of all people and right now there's an unequal balance and right now I think it's important to try and make it equal and that has to happen across all sectors, all communities. Certainly Trump's America is not a progressive place for women or for men I would say. It's really taking us backwards. And, you know, one might say Brexit is a very dangerous thing. And, you know, as a, as a foreigner, you know, when I hear the talk about the immigrants, it concerns me. My law firm, you know, um, maybe only keeps, you know, 60, 100 families going. But um, these are really good people mm -hmm. and they come from all around the world. We just hire the best. 
and finest people we can find. And we don't care if they're big or fat or black or white, trans or Lithuanian or Russian. Um, they're all British. They have British right to work here. Mm -hmm. And so we think we're really supporting Britain. We love Britain. We want the best of it to come forward. And we think feminism and fighting for it helps us all. It gets us to a better place in this world. And I hope in the next and for all of our children. Well, I think having just spent a, a short time in your company, uh, I'm certainly motivated. And I, I, I defy anybody not to be. It, you're an inspiration. And it's been uh, carry on doing the good work that you're doing. Um, and hopefully many more people will follow. Thank you. Thank you. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.